Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Monday, June 5th, 2023. This is Shannon, and tonight I am here with Stacy and Christine, and we are talking about, can anyone guess? Probably not, so I'll just tell you. We are talking about books that center around books. So that was going to be books... my guess. Wow. <laughs> We are talking about books that are either set in libraries or bookstores, maybe books about authors, um, all different types of book-related things. So we will get started with the usual housekeeping information, and then I will start us off, followed by Christine, and last will be Stacy. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Book Bistro Podcast. There we have our usual Facebook page where we keep track of our Wednesday reads and also post information about the Friday episodes. We also have a Facebook listener group that you're welcome to join. And if you prefer a different type of listener group, you can contact us and ask about our WhatsApp group. Both groups are pretty small, not super high traffic, and we would love to have you. If you want to get in touch with us off of social media, you can do so by sending an email to thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for our main hosting page where you can find information on the podcatchers that make Book Bistro available to you, you can find that information in our show notes. Three of the four books that I have tonight are kind of on the, the heavier side of what I usually read. And so my first book was just a really happy, fun surprise. And this is the first book I've ever read by this author, and I loved it so incredibly much. This is Better Than Fiction by Alexa Martin. And this is about Drew, and Drew hates books. Now, right off the bat, this makes me wonder like how I can be a fan of Drew because well book hating people I, I just don't know but Drew hates books she feels like everything in them is just set up like to make people feel bad because their lives can never turn out the way they they do in books but when her grandmother dies Drew inherits the book nook which is this lovely little bookstore in Denver. And she loves the store because it holds so many memories of her childhood and just her relationship with her grandmother. And she really feels like she owes it to her grandma to keep the store going. Now in the store is this book club and it is called the Dirty Birds Book Club. And it is comprised of seven of her grandmother's closest friends. And so all of these women are like 70 and over, and they're very, very meddlesome, very, very funny. 
Um, I loved them a lot. They were like just a great addition to the story. And so they are really helping Drew keep the bookstore going um, because she just doesn't feel equipped to run it the way she should or the way she feels she should. Mona, who is one of these women, decides that it would be a great idea to have an author come speak at the store. And this author is Jasper Williams. And he is this very like hot author. Everybody's always talking about his books. He's written a bunch of them. Um, and he writes romance novels, which I thought was very, very cool. Um, I don't, like, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of many men who write romance novels like that aren't writing under a pseudonym. So I just thought this was very cool. So Drew and Jasper meet and they have this instant spark. But Drew knows that she and Jasper are just too different to make things work. Like, first of all, she hates books and he's an author. So, you know, how is this good? But slowly, as they begin spending time together, Jasper begins to introduce her to reading. And when they read a book that he recommends, then they do like a, an activity that goes along with that book. And so it's like a, like a bucket list match with books. And so it was just a, a really cool way of like getting them together on dates and doing things that are fun and igniting Drew's like inherent love of reading that she kind of put aside after childhood. Now, Jasper is in Denver researching his next book, which is going to be set there. And so Drew is also sort of acting as his guide to like the Denver scene and all the cool little quirky things that she would want to see in a book that's set there. Now, this wouldn't be a romance if there wasn't like some sort of conflict. But one of the things that I loved most about it is that the conflict doesn't necessarily stem from the relationship between Drew and Jasper itself. There are some very messy family dynamics here that relate to Drew and how, how she copes with a lot of drama that her father brings to the table. Um, there's a very cool relationship with her younger sister that I loved a lot. Um, there's just so much to love about this. And I am so glad that I read it. It is Better Than Fiction by Alexa Martin. I did not realize that you hadn't read any Alexa Martin before. I have not. She is delightful. And I actually, though, must admit that I haven't read this one yet. Sarah read it last year and really liked it. And it's on my TBR, but I think I need to move it up. So my first book this evening is The War Librarian by Addison Armstrong. Yay. This, is a, this is a dual timeline novel. And in the first timeline, we are in 1918 in France during World War I. And we are following Emmeline Balakin. And she's a daughter of Russian immigrants, and they have both passed away. She works at the dead letter office, and she's been working there for five years, sorting through lost mail. And one day a letter arrives from an, 
and it's got a name that she recognizes from someone that she knew as a teenager. And they are involved in, in World War One, and she decides to take a chance to see if she can go find this person. And she also feels like she wants to do something different than she's doing right now. So she volunteers as a war librarian at the front. She sorts books and delivers them to the hospital. And this is the first time that she's been around any kind of, of serious injuries and, and this close to anything connected with war. And so that really affects her, but it also makes her really care about what she's doing. So she visits each ward of the hospital once a week. And if men can't read, she reads to them. One thing that she notices while she's doing this is how differently uh, black soldiers are treated than white soldiers. And this really, really bothers her. And so she starts to talk to some people who maybe feel the same way. She, she starts a book club where men can really talk about the issues. And she it's very controversial. It's held in a controversial place because it's held uh, on the ward for black soldiers and white soldiers are going to it. And she also um, is choosing controversial books. So she doesn't realize that this is that this she's kind of naive. She also finds romance and falls in love in a place where, you know, there's usually just pain and death. And that's a, a bit of a of a surprise for her. But she gets into a lot of trouble because of this book club and she ends up paying and people associated with her end up paying a pretty high price. So in the other timeline, we are in America in 1976 and Kathleen Carr is working as a dental receptionist, but she's waiting to be accepted into the first co-ed class in the United States Naval Academy. She is like way Whoa. fired up about this, really excited when she gets her um, her admissions letter. She's really sad because she's been raised by her grandmother. They're very close and she has to leave her behind. And this is hard, but her Nana assures her that she's going to be fine and she needs to go off and, and do this. Now, the Navy is not prepared at all for the women recruits. Like, they have to do this. There's, like, kinds of pressure to start letting women in. But it's not a thing that everybody is behind. So nothing is right for them. They have issues with the uniforms. They don't fit right. They're not meant uh, to be worn by women they're not sized properly the shoes that the women are expected to wear are like unsuitable and like they're they're they try to they're just like fancy they're not at all <laughs> cut fancy out for shoes. naval shoes <laughs> yeah and um so 
she thinks that these are pretty big problems. She doesn't realize those are just the beginnings of her problems because the men are also not happy to have women at the academy. Now, some are fine, but the ones that are not are um, really cruel. And some of them are very, very mean. They're bullying, they haze. And she becomes the target of a really nasty group of these uh, midshipmen. And one in particular, um, really, uh, he does terrible things to her. She's very humiliated. Um, And she's told when she takes this concern to the higher ups that this is all just normal. You know, this is um, this is men being men and it's not their fault that women can't handle this the stuff that you know they're yeah. fishing out uh-huh. and you know that that kind of stuff right so yeah she eventually gets accused of committing a crime which of course she did not commit and she faces being court-martialed and she has to ask a person from her nana's past to help prove her innocence and you can guess probably that where we are going with uh, her grandmother's past is uh, yes. to a connection between her and our other timeline. So in it and uh, says two women, one secret and a truth worth fighting for. They do have a really interesting connection. There's a whole lot of um, uh, mystery and, and, you know, uh, and stuff with that. But there's also such good history about, uh, both of these timelines, the Naval Academy and, and women trying to get in and have a place and just World War One, which um, I've just started to find some really good reading about over the last couple of years. So I really enjoyed this book a great deal. And it is The War Librarian by Addison Armstrong. I like so, her a lot. Yeah, I read The Lights. Is it of Luna Pier, I always say the name Luna wrong. Park, yeah. Luna yeah, Park. Yeah, that was good too, yes. And I, um, I put this on my wish list actually like well before it was released because I loved her other books so much. And I really like how she takes sort of like interesting eras in history and really spotlights something that we may not know much about for the time. I mean, I, yeah. I think about yeah. like, this is going to sound so stupid, but like I just, I had no idea that you know, it was not until 1976. I was born in 1978. And to think that the first class, a co-ed class in the Naval Academy, that that was two years before I was born. It's just, to me, that's very fascinating. So right. I need to, again, I feel like and I'm you like don't, a broken record. <laughs> and you don't always hear a lot about war librarians either in World War no, I. You know, no, you no. Don't, you don't like see how that is and how hard, how, how hard that can be. My first book tonight is Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. And this book was unexpected. I really enjoyed it. It's it's gotten a lot of hype in the last couple of years for very good reason. It's a book about Eva, and she is an author of erotic romances. She writes um, erotic fantasy romance about a witch and a vampire. And it's a very popular series that um, has garnered her quite the audience. Lots of white, um, middle-aged housewives that travel to see her. 
And, um, you know, she's, she's very, um, kind of ambivalent about her characters after writing them. She started writing these characters when she was 19 after a life altering event that she experienced. And now she's in her thirties. She has a 12 year old daughter. And when our story starts, she's experiencing some pretty epic writer's block. She's supposed to have book number 15 in this series delivered to her editor and, or to her publisher. And she just cannot begin to fathom how to continue writing about these characters. And Eva is a single mom. Um, she had a very amicable divorce with her husband and they, ha- they share, they co-parent their 12 year old daughter who is quite precocious for her age. She was reading Freud. I believe it was in third grade. It might've been fifth, but regardless, uh-huh. I wouldn't have known who Freud was at either grade level. Um, and she's just very precocious. She lives in Brooklyn and is very proud, Eva is, of the fact that she can send her daughter to this very prestigious um, private academy and that her daughter has a life where she can grow up being anybody that she wants to be and very supported and has the freedom because of Eva's writing to kind of pursue whatever interest she wants to pursue. Eva is at a panel at the beginning of the book of various Black writers and poets. And she is presenting there, which is kind of amazing to her because as an author of erotic romance, she hasn't really been taken very seriously by the more highbrow literary circles, shall we say. But she was asked to speak on this panel. And in the middle of the panel discussion, all of a sudden the doors open in the back of the room and in walks Shane Hall, who was a secret sort of senior year era romance 15 years ago for Eva. And they had a whirlwind week together that was seven days in June. And she hasn't seen him in 15 years. He's an author. Um, He writes very highbrow literature and has gotten a lot of attention for the books that he has written about this young black woman kind of like living um, in a sort of um, underprivileged area. And people have really sort of bonded with his character that he only calls eight. And their eyes meet across this crowded room. And here begins a sort of um, week of rediscovery where two people now who are adults, who are in, you know, overall healthier places in their lives are beginning to kind of reconnect and to form a friendship that could become something more. And at the same time this is happening, Eva's life is kind of falling apart. Her very precocious daughter did something very precocious at school that has led to some consequences for her. She cannot figure out how to write book 15 in her series because she just isn't feeling these characters anymore that you know, were her bread and butter for so many years. And she's learning things about her past and about Shane that 
are kind of rocking her whole like world on its foundation. And then we have Shane who um, has only been sober now for two years. He um, can no longer write. He's an English teacher. He um, is kind of in this place of wanting to make amends to Eva from years ago. And, you know, is just hoping to be able to say his piece and leave and wasn't prepared to then kind of be reintroduced back into her life. And he wasn't prepared to be outed that his character, his, you know, very admired young woman character is actually based on Eva. And shockingly, everyone is shocked when they realize that the sort of brooding alpha hole sort of elusive vampire in Eva series is based on Shane. And so for the last 15 years, these two people have been writing essentially love letters to each other through the various characters that they write, one in highbrow literature and one in erotic romance. And during this one very tumultuous week, 15 years later, again in June, they begin to learn more about themselves, about each other, and about life that will kind of help them hopefully to move forward. I love this book a lot. There's a lot about writing, the power of writing, the power of reading, about what it is to be an outcast and what books can do for you as an outcast in your writing. Um, There's some very, very heavy topics introduced in this book. There's discussion of self-harm. There's discussion of um, drug use and um, mention of um, suicidal ideation. But at its core, this book is about two people who connect because of writing and reading and being different. And it was a really lovely book with a lot of heavy topics that ultimately just makes you really appreciate just so many different types of love the love of friends and the love of families and the, you know, just romantic love and also the love of books. And I enjoyed this book quite a lot. This is seven days in June and it's by Tia Williams. I bought this a couple of years ago in the audible, like site-wide sale when they were having it and it still sits in my audible library unread Mm. and this is very very sad i think you'd like it a lot i think um it's very relevant very important it's also um really lovely about like new york and brooklyn and um just there's so many i don't know it's it's just lovely all the way around so my second book tonight is one that i'm always super excited to talk about Um, It's a book that really put this author on the map, at least for me. I'm sure that there were people, you know, before this book that knew about her and appreciated her writing. But sadly, I was not one of them until I picked this up. So this is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And this came out, I want to say in 2017, 2016 or 2017. So it's been out now for a while. And this is a dual timeline novel. Um, But what you need to know before we actually delve into the timelines per se is that this is the story of an actress 
who is looking for someone to write her biography. And it's going to be a scandalous like tell-all biography. So think um, Genuine Lies by Nora Roberts, but with a, a slightly different format. Um, so she chooses this magazine writer who in a lot of ways is unknown and is such an odd choice, people think. Like, why wouldn't she have chosen somebody that you know has more clout, that has more connections in the industry? But Evelyn has reasons for choosing Monique Grant, who is this magazine writer. And we don't know them until the end of the book. So we move back and forth in time from Evelyn's coming to Los Angeles in the 1950s and sort of getting her start in show business to present day when Monique is traveling to Evelyn's apartment and really getting to know her as a person rather than as like this famed Hollywood actress. So this is in a lot of ways, a story that isn't about books. Like you're not, you know, you're, you're not reading about books, you're reading about Hollywood, but the story is being told in the vehicle of a book. And I'm just, like I said, always really happy to talk about this book. And so I thought that it would fit well. Um, so what we're doing here is we're picking apart Evelyn's life from all of her Hollywood successes to what ended up making her bid farewell to show business in the 1980s. And along the way, we are looking at the seven husbands who helped to shape Evelyn into the woman that she is at the time that she's writing her biography. We are also looking at a forbidden love, which may or may not involve one or more of the husbands. Um, and how it is that deep and forbidden love that Evelyn always holds like closest to her. We also learn that there are some connections between Evelyn and Monique. Um, as I said, you don't know what they are until sort of the end, you know, toward the end of the book. But I loved watching Monique kind of grow and come into her own as she's learning more about Evelyn's life and her struggles and her triumphs. You know, at first, you definitely see Evelyn as sort of the star of this book. And I think in a lot of ways, that's true. But you also see the way past experiences can shape the present. And I think Monique is a really, really good illustration of that. This book just made me so happy when I read it. I love early Hollywood books. Um, I love all the, the glitz and the glamour and the scandal. Um, and this was just lovely in every possible way. It is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I loved it. Loved it. Yes. So my second book is The Seaside Library by Brendan Novick, which hasn't been out for oh, very long. No. I read it pretty much as soon as it was out. And it takes place on Mariner's Island, which is about 10 miles long. So it doesn't seem like a very big place. But for our three friends, Cam, 
Ivy and Ariana, when they were growing up, it was their whole world. Um, it has uh, a lot of uh, beaches, pristine beaches. It has an iconic lighthouse. And it has a beautiful old library that belongs to Ivy's family. So Ivy has always stayed on the island, uh, even in, in adulthood. She never left. She always stayed, had a lot to do with the library, working there. Um, lots of events take place there. And she um, uh, recommends books for people and, you know, all that. But Ariana couldn't leave the island fast enough like she when she graduated she was gone partly because she had unrequited feelings for cam that she's the only one who knew about and she really never knew if he had any for her and partly because there was a tragedy that happened on the island in their last summer there and it shook the community a girl their age disappeared and cam was the prime suspect there weren't a lot of kids on mariners island it's mostly touristy so people would come there uh, uh during the summers especially but otherwise there there weren't and so for some reason cam was um decided that he he must have done this but his two friends really knew he was not capable of hurting anybody. And they decided that they were going to help him, even if it meant lying for him, because they knew that he wouldn't do this. And so they did that. And life went on. And 20 years passed. And um, Ariana is coming back to the island she figures it's been long enough she wants to reconnect with ivy and cam well she's not sure about cam but she really wants to see him but just as she's getting back to the island there is new information that comes up about this case that has been cold for a long time and this information is really difficult because it brings into question what they believed about the past, what they thought they knew, and it makes them wonder if they should have lied for him and how much trouble they're going to get into because the lie may be found out. And it it's, it puts a lot of pressure on the relationships. And when there are feelings that start to kindle, what's going to happen when the truth comes out? We're uncertain about all that. So during this summer, we do find out what happened that night. And we find out who can be trusted and who couldn't be. And we find out the truth. And it's a fun read. And I, I like the last uh, line of the synopsis. It talks about, we discover the ties that still bind them as closely as the pages of a book. 
Ooh, I just I love, love that. that last yeah, line. Yeah, I like that too. I that's great. Yeah, I liked this book a lot. It was a good read. It's t- Brenda Novick does some really awesome standalone stuff. And, yeah, I like her um, a lot. This is no exception, and it is The Seaside Library by Brenda Novick. So is this Yay! your most recent? Is this the one that just came out? It is. Yeah. Because um, A, I want to read this because it looks really good, but B, um, I don't know if either of you follow Brenda Novak on social media, but she's been doing this, um, this book tour with her husband where she's driven around the country, um, towing an Airstream trailer that she's turned into a little like, um, book, bookstore slash coffee shop that she has been bringing with her. And so they go, they've been presenting about her books. They, they meet up with other authors in various, um, spots it just finished up at the end of May and they've been promoting this book by driving around the country, um, serving people like coffee drinks, talking about the book, doing Q and A's. And she's just written like this amazing two month long sort of like journey of her traveling around the U S like, even if you don't read her books, like just being able to like um, follow this whole journey she went on was really neat. And like just all the different places she went and all the different food they had. But um that aside, this book looks delightful, and I think I need to um, move it up my TBR. <laughs> <laughs> so my second book this evening is one that I was very excited about when it came out last year, and I binged it the day it came out, and I missed by like five minutes the ability to interview the author actually with Shannon. And... Um, I'm no, talking I tried about, so hard to get I know, you. I know. And I'm bitter <laughs> that I had walked away from my phone and I didn't see the text until it was too late. Yes. But that's neither here nor there at this point, except for that I feel like I missed out on talking to a really delightful, wonderful person. Um, and this I'm going to talk about is The Dead Romantics, and it's by Ashley Poston. This book is lovely and unique and different and perfect and all the things. It's about Florence Day. And she's actually a ghostwriter for a really prolific romance author who's been writing for a long time. She kind of um, reminded me of like a Nora Roberts type writer. And this is um, this book. She's like getting down to the deadline. Um, Actually, it's like in the next couple of days. And she just cannot make this this book come together. So basically, at the beginning (laughs) of this book, she um, meets her new editor. Benji Anders, and he is not willing to extend her deadline, and she's feeling very, very stressed. And she, instead of um, actually like buckling down and working on her manuscript, ends up going out to the bar with her friend, as one does during times of great stress. Because when you can't make writer's block desert you, and you're bitter because of your own breakup, and you no longer believe in love and romance, why not go out to the bar with your best friend and drink? when you have a deadline looming, because that seems like a really good idea. And at this bar where Florence goes with her friend, she ends up running into her ex, the very reason she now feels that love is dead. And she's just kind of distraught. But then things get even worse because she shares a moment, an interlude outside this bar with none other than her editor, Ben. And then she gets a phone call that just kind of uproots everything about her life. 
because her beloved father has died. And after being away from her hometown for at least a decade, Florence has to go back to her small southern town to bury her father. And that is not a spoiler, friends. That's right in the synopsis. I'm not giving anything away. So back she goes, devastated and traumatized that she didn't get the chance to say goodbye to her father, who she loved very much. And what makes all of this even more challenging is that her family owns the funeral home in town, and it is the family business. They are the funeral directors. They do all of the, you know, they're in the business of, you know, putting on the funerals in town. And she's part of this quirky family. Florence is the oldest. And she has not come home at all since she left for college. Because one of the things that Florence shared with her father is the ability to see ghosts. I know that's Shannon's favorite thing in the whole world when there's ghosts in books. Like, it is truly her favorite. But I think even in this instance, it may not bother her so much because the ghosts are kind of interesting. But I digress. Anyway, so she's back home now. And when she, oh, I'm sorry, when she was 13... She saw a ghost and was able to help um, local law enforcement to solve a murder. And because of her involvement, she became like the town outcast and was bullied pretty badly by her peers. And so, you know, she doesn't have good memories of this town because she felt, you know, so like out of place there. But coming home, she can't deny Like there's things about coming home that feel very good to her, even in like in the midst of all of her grief, it's comforting to be back in a place that's so familiar with people, even though she's not close to her family anymore and she's kept herself apart, being back here feels sort of comforting in an odd way, but yet she still has this deadline looming, this book she has to finish and she's, you know, here to say goodbye to her father. And in addition to that, one day she Soon after coming home, she opens the door of the funeral home and who is standing there but the ghost of her editor. And OMG, that changes everything. And so as Florence is trying to come to terms with how to write a romance that she no longer believes in and how to kind of feel like she's getting back in step with the family that she has sort of walked away from. And how to deal with this ghost of this very, very attractive man who doesn't necessarily feel like he should fit into a family and doesn't really have a lot of experience with that and is terrified by what is happening to him. She's dealing with all of this during this time while she is away. And that's really all I'm going to say about it is that Florence Day has a lot on her plate between writing her book that she can't seem to make the romance. There are so many times where she's writing this romantic scene and all of a sudden one of the characters dies or hurts the other character or something because she just really is angry at love. But yet Ben's presence in her town, as strange as it is, as though she cannot help him finish, she doesn't know what his unfinished business is. And she's trying to help him so he can cross over. And he doesn't feel like he's ready to cross over. He feels like there's something going on. And, you know, her, her siblings, they, they have some angst with each other and some, some pain that needs to heal. And she has to kind of work through some things with her mother and kind of deal with the grief of her father. This book is just so gorgeous and perfect. And it's about a messy family. It's about 
a quirky small southern town. It's about how to kind of figure out how to rekindle your belief and your faith in love when romance hasn't done good things for you. And then there's a question of, is there any way that she and Ben can find some sort of happily ever after? I love this book. It makes me happy. It's quirky. It's different. It's unique. It's perfect. It's Mm -hmm. Ashley Poston's adult debut. And if you like romance and books about books and romance and just all the things, you must pick up this book immediately and read it. This, again, is The Dead Romantics, and it's by Ashley Poston. All right. So I have a ghost book, too, sort of. (gasps) Stop. Like like an unconventional sort of ghost book. Um, (laughs) So this book, I have a lot of complicated feelings about. And you will see why as I begin to talk about it. This is The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. And this is an author that I first read in college and didn't enjoy. Um, And that's not nice, but it's true. And I wasn't sure about reading this, but both Amber and Robin have been talking about it, you know, since they read it um, in like early 2022. And so I decided to give it a try. This is set in Minneapolis and it starts in November of 2019 and concludes in November of 2020. It is centered around a bookstore that actually exists in Minneapolis called Birch Bark Books. And this is the bookstore that Louise Erdrich actually owns. So it was kind of a cool thing to see. Um, It sort of brought to life on the page here. Our main character is an indigenous woman named Tuki. And she has recently, well, not, I guess technically not recently, but she has been released from prison. And since her release has been working at the bookstore. Um, She went to prison for stealing a dead body and using it to transport drugs. Um, I'm not going to tell you more about that because that's just a part of like the the quirkiness of this book. Um, But this has played a huge part in her life, both because it sent her to prison, but also in kind of shaping her into who she is on the outside now. So she works at the bookstore and there's this customer who's always in there. And she's a very complicated woman. She's white, but she really, really, really wants to be indigenous. And so she's, she's cringy about this in all of the ways that you would imagine, you know, somebody who is appropriating a culture would be cringy. And then we find out that Flora dies. And somehow, for reasons that are unknown for most of the book, she begins to haunt the bookstore and to haunt Tuki in particular. Now, Tuki wants to get rid of her. Like she didn't like her when she was alive. So she doesn't really like her now that she's not. 
But as time moves on, you know, if we think back to March of 2020 and everything that happened just in that year as a whole, um, things get super complicated, especially in Minneapolis. And with the COVID pandemic and then the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020, there is just so much going on in Minneapolis that causes a ton of upheaval. Some of it we know about just from, you know, seeing it on the news and living through the COVID pandemic ourselves. But there's also a lot of internal struggle that goes on for Tukey during this time. This is a novel about ghosts, both literal ghosts, as in Flora, who haunts the bookstore, and figurative ghosts, like the thing that caused Tukey to steal a body, and things that are are haunting her husband and her co-workers. So we see a lot of interconnecting stories here and like how they bring people together. I think the shining moment in this book, like anything that speaks of books is so, so rich and detailed here. This is a book that really speaks of the author's love of books and sort of what what makes her not only write them, but own a bookstore that sells them. And we see this through Tukey's love of books. It's books that really helped her survive her time in prison and books that keep her kind of moving forward, especially during 2020 when things are really, really hard. Um, It's an interesting mix of like reality and the supernatural because we are watching Minneapolis struggle with, you know, some real life issues and we're seeing all the protests that happened around the death of George Floyd. We're seeing the COVID pandemic and what happens to indigenous people when some of them fall ill. Um, It is, you know, very rooted in reality in that way. But then we have Flora, who is haunting the bookstore. And so this brings in a lot of like Native American mythology and just all kinds of of theories and beliefs about ghosts and the spirit realm. So there were parts of this book that I really enjoyed. Parts of it I could have done without. Um, I'm guessing, you know, people can guess which is which. (laughs) But I feel like it would be it would have been very hard to write this book in any other way. And so even though the ghost aspect is not my favorite, there is still something that pulled me in and caused me to keep reading this, you know, even though um, it does definitely have a a ghosty vibe. Um, This is The Sentence and it is by Louise Erdrich. The next book I'm going to talk about is The Book Haters Book Club by Gretchen (laughs) Anthony. (laughs) This was a very fun and also in some ways deep book, but it has wonderful humor in it. There is a bookstore named Over the Rainbow Bookstore in Minnesota. 
and it is owned by Elliot and Irma. They are very, very close friends, have been for most of their lives. They're, they have a very complex relationship that we learn more about as the book goes on. But they own this bookstore together. And Elliot's passion is that there's a book for everyone. And he loves recommending the right book to the right customer. And he says all it takes is the right book to turn a book hater into a book lover. He even started a book haters book club in the, in the store for people who were non-readers. And he, he started this letter, that newsletter for book haters, and he would give recommendations that would turn them on to reading if they would just give them a chance. Well, he dies very suddenly of uh, a heart attack. What and a death in is, these books. Yes, that it, you, you can't, apparently <laughs> running bookstores is, is not as easy as one might think. Um, he dies suddenly, and this is awful for a lot of reasons. And one of them is that Irma has decided to sell the bookstore to developers who are going to turn it into condos. No. And lots of people don't like this. Her two daughters, Bree and Lainey, are really, really against this. This was their, they grew up in this bookstore. They spent tons of time in it as children. It was their getaway. Um, Bree still works in it with her mother. Lainey has come home. She lives in California. She came back because she uh, doesn't understand what's going on. And she uh, wants to uh, find out why this is happening. Elliot's life partner, Tom, wants to preserve his legacy, would do anything to do that. He desperately doesn't want the store uh, to go away. And so we find out why she's so eager to sell the store. There are some reasons that she feels like she has to do this because Bree and Lainey are so desperate to save it. And so are a lot of other people like Tom and other people in the community. Lots of people get involved in this. We have snooping going on. We have some sabotage. We have very humorous family hijinks, all that kind of join together in this book to try to save this bookstore and to figure out how this can happen and what can go on. So there's not a lot I want to say about any of that because it's just really a fun, but also, you know, deep in a good way kind of read so this is the book haters book club by gretchen anthony this looks so so good i love that this guy named elliot has decided there's a book out there for every book hater that can turn them into a book lover i think that is an amazing concept and i kind of agree like i feel like there's something for almost everyone in a book that My third book of the evening is a book that I anticipated with great excitement before its release because it was the first romantic comedy by Kerrigan Byrne. This is Nevermore Bookstore and it's Townsend Harbor book one and it's by the writing team of Kerrigan Byrne and Cynthia St. Aubin. 
I have not read books by this other author before, but I um, actually just bought one of her books today in the Audible sale. And I'm looking forward to checking out her stuff. So this book is about Cadence Bloomquist, and she is a young woman in her 20s who has just um, taken over her Aunt Fern's bookstore after her aunt's death, the Nevermore bookstore. And she's struggling a bit. You know, she has a lot going on. Her aunt just passed away. Um, and she is trying to kind of get all of that in order after her sudden passing, after a brief and uh, very debilitating illness. And she's having some issues with the town regarding the ownership of the building that houses the Nevermore bookstore and her apartment. In addition to this, she deals daily with um, a chronic illness and chronic pain that is quite debilitating. And every day, you know, kind of her ability to manage her pain is different depending on the day and, and how she's feeling, which can also kind of impact her ability to run the store. And so she has all these things going on, but one bright spot besides her close friendship um, that she's had for the last several years. But the one bright spot she has is the customer who she only knows as Fox. And he calls her every Thursday evening to order books. And while these phone calls began as him just calling to order books to be shipped to him, they soon, these conversations soon develop into something much deeper where they talk about books and life and there's some banter and flirting. And Katie just really lives for these Thursdays with her mystery fox, who she's convinced is some sort of like reclusive billionaire living like in a fabulous mansion and, you know, living this amazing life. And like the goal every week is to find him books that he loves. So what Katie doesn't know is that fox is none of these things. Fox is a man who is living very rough on a mountain um, away from society. He is reclusive, um, but he feels as though it's best for him and for other people if he stays very much on his own, kind of living rough on the land um, because of the PTSD he has from the time that he was in the military. And so she has no idea how much the phone call each week means to Fox and how her voice and talking to her and getting her book recommendations is the one bright spot in a life that feels very, very hard and where he still is half in the nightmare of the things that happened to him when he was in the military. But one time as they are talking on the phone together, Fox is rather distressed. And by rather distressed, I mean basically horrified when he hears um, a break in in progress at Katie's store. And he is so worried about her that he runs all the way to town to kind of check in on her. And the plan is to kind of watch over her from afar. But Katie makes that very hard with 
the way that she draws people to her and the way that she is very accepting of those who live on the fringes of Townsend Harbor. And despite his best efforts, he's kind of drawn into Katie's orbit and becomes a protector of sorts for her as she tries to sort out the mess around the ownership of the bookstore and who's breaking in to her business um, and you know what they could possibly want. And what did Aunt Fern leave for her to find among all of her papers? This book is not for everyone. Um, it's, it's pretty kink positive. Um, there's some very light um, voyeurism that happens. Um, it's a very kink positive, sex positive, body positive book. Um, it, it has very frank discussion of chronic pain and, and basically how that can sort of influence a person's life on a day-to-day -day basis and what it's like to live with debilitating chronic pain. This book has um, a very honest, in my, I mean, this is not my lived experience, but it seems as though this book also has a very honest real portrayal of someone living with PTSD and the ways that that can impact a person's life. It's also a book about glorious books. It's a book that includes a sexy, dirty, filthy, fabulous book club. And every time these people in this book club were on the page, I cackle laughed because they were so ridiculous. It's a quirky small town. It's strong, strong friendships. It's you know, a villain who is villainous. And it's about two people who don't necessarily fit the mold of um, what is typical in your romance novel, but somehow end up fitting perfectly together. I love this book a lot. I'm not going to say anything else about it, except it's a very unexpectedly fabulous treasure. Um, if you've read anything in the past by Kerrigan Byrne, you can expect a similar sort of dark, broody, tortured hero. Um, but the sort of romantic comedy elements were quite a surprise to me and just kind of really added to this book. And um, if, if you're okay with some, you know, kind of kinky things, um, I definitely encourage you to give this book a chance. The next book in the series comes out at the end of June and I cannot wait. So this is Nevermore Bookstore. Townsend Harbor book one by Kerrigan Byrne and Cynthia St. Aubin. How did I not know about this? I don't know. Um, I'm hoping at some point right now it's only available um, in Kindle. And oh, so um, it's not um, on audio at this point, but um, Kerrigan Byrne did mention when I asked on her author page that she's um, hoping to get it in audible and audio as soon as possible. So my last book tonight is Yellow Face by R.F. Quang. And this is kind of a departure for this author who up until this point has written speculative fiction, um, some fantasy, some sort of like magical realism stuff. But here we go into kind of a like a literary mystery, I guess. So at the center of this story are two women. They are June Hayward and Athena Liu. They are kind of like 
twin stars of, of publishing. They, they debut together and everyone is expecting them to kind of rise together. But only one of them becomes successful. And that one is not June. She doesn't get a paperback release of her books. People just don't seem all that interested in her. But for Athena, everything is super different. She becomes like the literary darling. And this really rankles for June. She feels like no one is interested in what she has to say. And she decides um, that this is because she's white and nobody wants to hear what a white girl has to say. And so she's very, very bitter about this. Now, she and Athena are friends, kind of. Like, they don't really like each other, but they spend a lot of time together. And so it's easier if they just get along. And after a period of time, they kind of convince themselves that they're friends. Or at least June convinces herself that Athena is her friend. Um, it's hard to know what Athena may have thought. So... One day they are in Athena's apartment and Athena dies. She chokes on some food and dies. And now, oh no. Yes. And June like witnesses this. And of course, as you would imagine, it really shakes her. You know, you don't expect something like that to happen. And then suddenly you're at the center of it and she doesn't quite know what to do. But for all that she doesn't quite know what to do, she does decide there's one thing she can do. And it is not at all a good or honorable thing. She decides that it's important to take Athena's just finished first draft of her new novel. She just takes it. Athena always writes um, with pen and paper and that's how she drafts and then once it's drafted the way she wants it she puts it on her computer and so it's more like her final draft is the one that will be sort of in a digital format but everything else is on paper and so she takes this book and she figures like that's fine like no one no one will know that it even exists so she has it and she starts reading it and she thinks it's really great but she also decides that she can make it greater. So she begins to edit it. And as she edits it, she becomes very attached to it. And so when she has it the way she wants it, she submits it to her editor as her own work, which is not great. So this is uh, like the book is sort of a speculative novel about Chinese laborers in World War I. Athena is Chinese, but as I said, June is not. But her publisher sort of decides that that doesn't matter. And so they decide that this book is going to be published under the name Juniper Song. And they create this sort of ethnically ambiguous author photo for her. So they don't go so far as to say that she is Chinese, but they don't say she isn't. And they sort of allude to the fact that like, maybe she is. 
And June's okay with this. She sort of thinks, you know, well, isn't this an important part of history that needs to be talked about? And maybe it doesn't matter so much who actually tells the story. But as we see, as the book goes on, it does matter. And people start to question some things about June's right to tell this particular story. Um, in the publishing process, they want her to hire a sensitivity reader. And she like doesn't want to do that. She just wants it to be the way she wants it to be. Um, and so this is, you know, in a lot of ways, like a huge amount of appropriation that goes beyond the fact that she stole someone's work and is passing it off as her own, but just that she refuses to have anybody else like look at it and make sure that, you know, the changes that she's made in her quest to quote unquote improve this um, are actually true to the Chinese experience. Um, someone suspects that this book is not June's and that maybe, maybe Athena wrote it. And so someone begins to contact June and try to hint around at what they think they know. And this sort of pushes June over the edge. And she begins to really obsess about the thing that she's done, but not because she feels bad about it necessarily, but because she's trying to protect herself. And so now she has to figure out how far she's willing to go to keep her secret. This is a book about racism in its many forms. It is a book about books. Um, it asks the question, like, who, who does have the right to tell certain stories? And what happens when we tell a story that isn't our own? Like, what do we owe that community? It's couched in a like a mystery aspect because you don't know who it is that you know is is suspicious of June um but I think at its core it's an examination of like all these little details about the publishing process and it really helps us go behind the curtain to see like what happens when a book is published I really really liked it um, the characters are not always likable. I will say that, you know, each of them is flawed in some ways that aren't always obvious. Like with June, you know, kind of right off the bat that she is not the best. But with other characters that you meet, you, you know over time that like there are good things about them, but there are also some really deep cracks um, in, in each of them. So it was a super compelling read. Jesse Q. Sutanto um, recommended this when I interviewed her a couple of months ago. And she has, I think, the best endorsement for this novel, which is that as she read her early copy, it made her walk eight miles on her treadmill because she just didn't want to stop reading it. And so as long as she kept walking, she could keep reading and that was okay for her. So as someone who is not, a big exercise fan. If there's a book that can make someone walk eight miles, I am here for it. This is Yellow Face by R.F. Quang. It does not seem like the best to act as an imposter when trying to get a book published. No, no, I don't think that's the best, especially since you did it once, like, and it didn't go well for her. Like she, right. You know, so then she just decided like this was 
this was a better idea. Especially if you are impersonating somebody of a different culture and a different race and, and trying writing to, about that. Yes. yes. <laughs> as if it's your lived experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Wow. My final book of the evening is Written in the Ashes by Kay Holland Van Zandt. And this is a book about the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. It's a book about Alexandria, Egypt, which is at this time plagued by religious unrest. You have basically three factions. You have Jews, Christians, and pagans. The Christians are trying to uh, take over, and they have ruled that paganism is punishable by death. And so they basically continually roam the streets looking for pagans and either killing them or uh, changing their minds about their loyalties. And the Jewish population dwindles as well because they are also not popular. The woman or young girl at first that we follow is named Hannah. Hannah is a beautiful Jewish shepherd girl and she lives with her father in the mountains of Sinai. She's very happy with her father. He's been raising her. They're very close. But she is taken from him one day, kidnapped and sold as a slave to Alizar. Alizar is an alchemist and very successful vintner. And Alizar, uh, it's fortunate that she is sold to Alizar because he, uh, he is a very, he's a kind man, he's a fair man, and he doesn't want to mistreat her. And shortly after she is sold to him, he and others realize that she has an absolutely beautiful singing voice. And this makes uh, him wish to train her and wish her to become uh, a bard. And she is destined to become the most celebrated bard in the, in the great library. The great library of Alexandria is where the world's knowledge is housed at this point. It, it, that, as far as anyone knows, this has the, all the wonderful works. But uh, the Christians don't want this library to continue because most of those works are works primarily pagan in origin and very philosophical, very questioning, uh, and very different from what uh, the Christians want to have as the primary reading materials. So while Hannah is in training at the library, learning a lot about all the works that are there, learning about the poetry, and learning how to sing 
the way only a wonderful bard can sing, the city's bishop, Cyril, is rising in power and he has his priests persecuting the pagans and the Jews. So a small group who does not agree to submit to the Christian rule form an uprising and the headmistress of the library is part of this uprising. Alizar is a big force in this resistance um, and they are fighting for justice, fighting for the right to practice their religion um, and to end the persecution. Hannah gets involved romantically with a couple of different men and is forced to make a choice between them that is complicated by the whole situation that she's in. Um, she has to end up going to the Oracle of Delphi, which is very cool. Um, she goes there to receive a uh, an answer to how to stop the escalating violence and to bring peace to the city. But in some ways that's too late because while she is away uh, doing this, the city is being totally decimated and the library is set on fire. Some of it burns down. Some of it is destroyed by looters who just go in and destroy the manuscripts. And so when Hannah returns with some of the answers that are needed to stabilize the situation, it would almost appear it's too late. But it doesn't seem that all is lost. And that's where I'm going to put it for you. It was a wonderful book about a time in history that I have not read about before. I've heard different things about it, but I have never um, actually delved into its history through a book. This was very well written. Uh, the characters were very likable, and the author really drew me into their lives and their histories, and I, I really wanted the fight for justice to go a certain way as well. They were people that I cared about. This is Written in the Ashes, and it's by Kay Holland Van Zandt. So I really struggled with what to use as my final book tonight because I love books about books, and I've read many of them. And I kept kind of going back and forth about what to talk about. But I ended up having to talk about Book Lovers by Emily Henry. And I know everybody else on the planet is talking about Book Lovers by Emily Henry, but it's deserved. It's all deserved. It's The book is that good. And it was my top read of 2022. Well, one of them. I have like four of them, but this is one of my top four top reads of 2022. And this book is about Nora. And Nora is um, a literary agent who works her butt off for all of her various authors and she's very much a city girl. She's very driven and is described as pretty cold and heartless, but she does have a heart surprise. And besides the fact that she works very hard for her clients, 
She also would do anything for her younger sister, Libby. Libby. So when Libby asks her to go to this small town in North Carolina that I believe is called Sunshine Falls for August for a girl's trip, she won't say no because she would do anything. Her whole goal in life is to ensure that Libby is happy. So they get to this town and, you know, Libby keeps trying to fit her into different romance tropes and she keeps trying to find her heroes like small town doctor or, you know, small town like rancher, farmer. And she keeps trying to set Nora up on these dates. And that would all be well and good because as I've said 50 times already, Nora would do anything for Libby. But the person she keeps ending up stumbling over is the broody book editor, Charlie Lastra. And he's also from New York City. And she's not thrilled about this because that would be amazing. Like if it were some sort of like meet cute, meet the, you know, book editor. But he's not cute. He's broody and he's tough to be around. He's opinionated. And their previous sort of interactions have not been all that fabulous. But now here they are in this little southern town where neither of them really fit. And they keep running into each other in these various places. And they begin to learn more about each other and they kind of begin to like dig beneath the surface. And as all this is going on, as she's sort of going from enemies to lovers trope with Charlie... Nora is also very worried about Libby. Something is not right with her. She's pregnant, but she's keeping secrets. And, you know, she starts to worry, well, is, is Nora, I mean, I'm sorry, is Libby having trouble with her husband? Like what, what is going on and how can she make it better when Libby for the first time in her life is not telling Nora everything. And Nora is very stressed by this. She's been sort of the caregiver for a long time. Um, it's just Nora and Libby now. And, you know, she just wants everything in the world to go well for Libby. And yet, as she's trying to deal with all this, she's beginning to have these kind of inconvenient feelings for this man, Charlie, who is way more than what she kind of assumed um, at the beginning of August. And So if all of this is not enough, this book is actually a love letter to, as you might kind of figure out from the name, book lovers. And the entire thing just is a whole like list of amazing authors and tropes and discussion of, you know, being in crowded bookstores in New York City on a Saturday. And it's just such a lovely book full of very strong family elements like I said, enemies to lovers trope and so much discussion of amazing books. And I don't want to say much more about it because if for some reason you haven't read book lovers yet by Emily Henry, you really need to like Shannon, you really (laughs) need to pick it up. Um, If you read it in audio, it is beautifully narrated by Julia Whalen. Um, And I think it's actually yeah, I do too. And I think it's actually um, the most emotional narration by her I've ever read um, besides her own book. Thank you for listening, which is also an amazing book about books, but I digress. And um, she just does an amazing job with these characters and really brings a depth and resonance. And just she just really um, 
brings these characters to life. So I recommend reading it in audio. This is an amazing book. I love it so much. I'm not doing it justice, but please, please, please pick up Book Lovers by Emily Henry at your earliest opportunity. It is on my iPad. Of course, so many things are on my iPad that I don't know that that's like a a great um, indication of when it will be read. But it has moved from like, you know, just being on my TBR to actually existing on the iPad, if if that helps. That's amazing. That does help. That does help quite a bit. I think you'd really like it. So this concludes our Books About Books episode. Thank you to both Stacey and Christine for joining me tonight. As always, when she's here, Christine gets double thanks for both her editing and her participation. And of course, we thank each and every one of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books, this time about books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.